0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, we've been looking in Chapter 9 at the uh, Doctrine of Election, and in the first part of Chapter 9, Paul teaches very clearly uh, some very hard truths about God's choosing people. Uh, He chooses some to be uh, his, and he clearly, it says, hardens or rejects others. A hard teaching. And if we were to stop right there, we would have something that's true, but very out of balance and incomplete. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't stop there. Uh, He continues on in in, uh, the rest of... uh, Chapter 9 and Chapter 10, he starts to balance out the equation. And uh, I'm forced to use a, an illustration that's really quite dangerous for me. Uh, my worst subjects in school were math and, and chemistry. But I'm going to use a math and chemistry illustration. Right? So those of you who are way smarter than I am, just be prepared for me to make a total fool of myself, um, which is something that everybody delights in, I know. Um, balancing out an equation, right? Uh It means, if you remember those days of chemistry, that you have a bunch of molecules on this side and a bunch of molecules get put together into a chemical reaction into something else on this side, and in between is an equal sign, right? And the terror of my, my, it still gives me just shudders to think that I had to, in school, balance the equation, right? And you have to take what's on one side of the equal sign and you have to make it balance what's on the other side of the equal sign, right? And the principle behind this is that in any chemical reaction, no matter is lost, right? Now, I was quite lost. So I don't know if that counts. <laughs> but in the chemical reaction, no matter is lost, right? And so uh, the, the job of the scientist or the student is to balance that out and to show how everything on this side ended up on this side. So it's kind of a picture a, or an example when we come to this doctrine of our salvation, and on one side of it is God's side. On one side is what God does as He looks down on uh, uh, on His created order and He chooses by His own free will and purpose to save people. And He has not chosen to save all. Uh, he has chosen to save some. And He's free to make that choice independently of anything we do or think or say or feel. Independent even of our own faith. Right? Uh, That's one side of the equation. But on the other side of the equal sign is man's place in this process. And uh, on our side of it, on the earthbound, temporary side of it, uh, we uh, make active choices to choose to receive Christ and follow God. And that's much what uh, Paul teaches here. And he does it really to balance out uh, these these two truths and to keep them in tension and in, in balance. Now, what Paul does not do, and what we'd love to do, is we say, well, if God chooses, and he does this all in his own, and we're supposed to choose, how do we put those two things together? Well, Paul doesn't do that. And in fact, Scripture does not do that. Now, a lot of theologians try to do that, and normally fail miserably, because we end up usually favoring or balancing one side of that equation or the other. And so I'm going to stick with Paul, and I'm going to in this process go with a more biblical theology which means we look at what scripture says we take out of it its truth uh, we hold it up as a truth to be believed Uh, we're not going to do a systematic we're going to try to synthesize or put together these two seemingly contradictory or difficult truths now if you're a very logical person who wants to figure things out you go for it maybe you're good at this whole chemistry thing and you like balancing equations Uh, you put this uh to work, and you can do this, but we're not going to do that this morning. And uh, I would, I would just encourage you, for your own sanity, uh, that there are things about God's ordering and working in the world that are really beyond our grasp, right? And this, I think, is probably one of those things uh, where two things seemingly impossible are both true. Uh, but but Paul teaches both with great authority and clarity. And so we want to look through, and I want to. Um, look at what he says here in these verses from three different angles or perspectives. Okay, As he looks at, uh, and again the context here, it's important to keep the context in mind, that what he's talking about here is the failure of Israel or the Jews to uh, embrace the gospel. Uh, m- for the most part, the Jews were, uh, were not grabbing hold of the gospel. They weren't responding in faith. And it creates created some problems for Paul theologically. And that's really what he's wrestling with, how it is that God's chosen people who had been prepared for the gospel, for whom Jesus should have been the climax of everything in their culture and history, how they could miss it. That's what he's really wrestling with here. And and perhaps one of the reasons that he hasn't tried to wrestle or tried to uh, bring together our questions, because it's not the questions he's wrestling with. Uh, so he's looking at Israel, and he's looking at, uh, f- in first part of chapter 9, how God never promised he would choose or elect all Israel, that there would be a saved remnant out of the nation of Israel that would be the true children of God. Uh, then he turns a corner, and he starts to look at that other side of the equation, the man side. So let's look at it. We're going to look at it from three angles, the point of view of the individual seeking salvation, or in some cases not seeking salvation. We're going to look at it from the point of view of God and His perspective uh, as He sends salvation. And thirdly, from the point of view or perspective of those of us who have already come to faith in Christ, how do we view this? And this is important uh, that we keep this balance because if we walk away from this idea of election, as, as many people do, with this idea that, you know, God decided and it's set in stone and there's nothing you can do about it, so. You know, We just accept our fate, accept the fate of the world, and go through life minding our own business um, with the sense of fatalism, the sense of determinism. Okay, That would be one way to wrongly apply the doctrine of election. And Paul doesn't go there. Uh, Paul does not leave us with the sense, well, it doesn't matter, you might as well just live your own life because God's going to save who he's going to save and he's going to damn to hell those he's going to reject. And there's nothing you or anybody else can do about it. So if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really want to know who Jesus is, I want to get saved, you just say to them, well, you know, if you're elect, it'll happen. If not, I'll waste my time telling you about it. Right? Okay. Nowhere does Scripture teach that. Right? In fact, Paul teaches some very different things. So let's look at that, and we'll look through this uh, from these three sides. First of all, the side of the person seeking, the unbeliever. And Paul makes it very clear. I titled this, it's up to you. Right? It's up to the individual person to choose freely of their own will to receive God or to reject Him. And again, the main focus here is, is Israel. And he's talking specifically to Israel. But the principles would be true for anybody. right? Uh, so he says in, in verse 30 of chapter 9, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not run after or pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law or that goal. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, What was the downfall of the Jews? Now, after all that Paul has just said, he could have said this. He says, here's the downfall of the Jews. I just didn't pick them. It's their tough loss, right? But that's not at all what Paul says here. Paul says, this is the downfall of the Jews. I put a stone before them that was the stone of salvation, that was a foundation they could build their life on, and they fell over it, right? And they fell over it because they did not choose the path of faith. They rejected what God offered them, and held on to their misunderstood traditions. And the picture he really paints here is is somewhat of a race. He uses the word "pursue" is literally the word to run after, uh, and it could be uh, it could be pictured as a race, right? So this is the picture. He says the Gentiles who weren't even in the race, right? They weren't running the race. They weren't running after it, right? But they have stumbled across the finish line at the right moment, and they got the prize, right? If you've ever run races in Thailand, you know you can do this here, right? You, you, they have these running clubs, and uh, 50 people can be in the running club, and as long as one person from the club starts the race, uh, and anybody at the end can finish the race, everybody gets the prize, right? You don't actually have to do the in-between part, right? Well, that's kind of what he says. The Gentiles, they didn't start the race, they didn't run the race, but they just happened to show up at the finish line at the right time, and they got the prize. Because they understood that the, the finish line is the righteousness that God provides through faith. In other words, God did it. Right? God gave them His righteousness. All they had to do is accept it by faith. But the Jews, on the other hand, who were in the race, right, Gun goes off at the starting line, they charge ahead, they're running the race and they are running this race with zeal and determination. but they did not get to the finish line because they got lost on the course. Right? I remember uh, at the last winter Olympic, last Winter Olympics, I remember watching one of the events and it was a Nordic ski race. and I don't remember the distance. But they would do this course, several loops, and uh, then they would come into the kind of the finish line. But the finish line was a a series of two circles an outer circle that they would race around a few times. And then at one point, they would cut into an inside lane that was the finish line, right? And so there was this guy who was, uh, you know, in the lead and just skiing away. And he takes off and he comes into this inner track, and he's, he's, I mean, this outside track, and he's skiing around it. And he's dashing to the finish line. Uh, But he passes by the lane that cuts off to the finish line, right? So he ends up bypassing the finish line because he got lost on the course, right? And the guys behind him make the right turn and go into the finish line and uh, get the prize, right? Well, that's Israel, right? Israel uh, missed the prize because they didn't know where they were going. It's basically what Paul says here. And the problem, he said, comes down to their own failure to choose faith. Right? Um, he says it this way in, in chapter 10. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Okay, These guys are running fools. Right? They are running their hearts out. Their devotion to God cannot be questioned. Their genuine and sincere zeal for God cannot be doubted. But uh, not according to knowledge. Right? They have all the zeal but they're clueless about where they are headed. And they're responsible for that. And later on, he explains that that the knowledge has been made clear and evident to them. They willfully ignored uh, what God put in front of them. Um, He says, "...for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, being clueless of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness. And I love that word, submit. It's, a, it's an action verb, right? They had the responsibility to yield, to come under the clear teaching of the gospel, and they failed to do it. They chose otherwise. Um, for, uh, uh, for they were seeking their, to establish their own righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? So Paul makes it very clear that the failure of the Jews wasn't because God wasn't just because God didn't choose them. It was because they failed to respond in faith to the clear declaration and message of the gospel. He says again in verse 12, he says, "For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him." Right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God had made this offer to Israel. He didn't make it only to elect to a select group. He didn't withhold information. He proclaimed the message to all Israel. But they had failed to act in faith. They did not respond by receiving Christ. But in fact, they actively and willfully rejected Jesus. And Paul says they're responsible for that. It is their free will and choice. They're responsible for the decision they have made in relation to Christ. On the other side of the coin, though, he he says the Jews fell, but at the same time the Gentiles have found success. And if you look at some of those same verses from the side of the Gentiles, it says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue it found it. Right? why did they find it? Because they were smarter? No. Because, uh, you know, because God chose them? Well, to some extent, He already said that. But but here He says this. They found it because they responded to the righteousness that is by faith. Right? They trusted. They heard the message and they responded with faith. Uh, verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying... In Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Okay, what Israel had tripped over, and by the way, uh, it wasn't a little stone. Right, it was a big stone. In fact, it was a foundation stone. Uh, it was something that you could not easily miss. Right, but Israel tripped over it. But the Gentiles saw it, saw Jesus for who He was, and accepted it. And again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether Jew or Greek. Uh, so the Gentiles, where the Jews failed, the Gentiles were successful. For one simple reason, they responded in faith. Uh, and so the, the sum of what Paul says here, and you could really summarize the teaching of this passage uh, in the last verse where he says, uh, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Salvation is being offered to every human being on planet Earth, right? Regardless, and it's a simple matter, humanly speaking, of calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to call a name literally it means to invoke God's name, right? And if you've ever seen uh, like kind of witch, witchy kind of stuff, you know they invoke the name of the God to help them, right? You call in the name of God, and you you somehow corner or grab hold of the power that this deity has to help you solve your problems. Well, he says, we are to do that in terms of salvation. Uh, What Israel did not do was recognize that their their effort in the law was inadequate to save them. And they should have called upon the, the name of the Lord, realizing that they could not keep the law. But instead, they were pursuing the law. But those Gentiles who didn't have a clue about the law called upon the name of the Lord. And for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they are saved. Uh, So humanly speaking, every human being is confronted with this choice. Right? They must respond and decide what they will do with the truth of the gospel. Uh, Now you can say, well, what about those tribes off in some remote place who have never heard the gospel? Well, that's your job. But we'll get to that on point three. Okay? That's not their problem. It's your problem. Uh, and for the Jews living in this time period, okay, when Paul wrote this, the gospel mes- message had been preached in, in every place where Jews lived. Okay? The Jews could not use this excuse. The, the Jews could not say, well, oh, you know, I've just never heard of Jesus. Right? They knew who Jesus was, clearly. Right? Word of him had gone around the world. Uh, to every Jewish place, and people like Paul had gone to synagogues and to and to, uh, to meet with the Jews and to plead with them to receive its message. They had made it clear, as we'll see in a moment. Um, every person has the the responsibility, the choice, and the option to respond on their by their own free will to the message of the gospel. Right. So that's true of all of us, and. And we have, if you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Christ, you've experienced that, right? We know what it's like to be confronted with the message of the gospel. And there was probably a season where we wrestled with it, right? We struggled with its truthfulness. We struggled with, will we give into it? Will we yield our lives? I love that phrase. Will we submit to the righteousness of Christ? Will we yield ourselves to this plan of salvation that God has made? And if you're here and in Christ you made that conscious choice and actively pursued Him not on the basis of your own good deeds or effort or work, but simply by believing that God has done this for you in Christ. Right? So that's, that's the side of the unbeliever and how we need to see the Gospel relating to every unsafe person. It is for them a crossroads, a place where they must choose to either receive or reject Christ in faith. Well, what about looking at it from the side or the angle of God? Now, and this is the most difficult one and perhaps the most confusing because God is the one who, who's made this, this choice, right? He was elected. And somewhere in the infinite wisdom and mind of God, God knows everything. He knows His purpose and His will. He knows who He's going to save and not save. Uh, it would be very easy for God to take a very fatalistic approach, right? To go, well, you know, those five people, they're going to get saved. I'm going to... I'm going to make sure they go, I could really care less about everybody else, right? That could be God's approach. But notice what Paul teaches about God's heart, right? How God sees the gospel in relation to unbelievers in this passage. Again, we're going to look through these same verses. You'll know these verses, of nothing else, as we go through them three, three different times. Uh, verse 33, again, Okay, looking at it from God's point of view, uh, it says, as it is written, behold, I, that is God, I, is God is speaking here, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, where did this rock of stumbling, stone of stumbling come from? Well, God sent it, right? Who did God send it to in this context? Well, he sent it specifically to Israel, right? And, and what was the stone of stumbling? Well here's the Christmas, here's the Christmas footnote. <laughs> right? It's Jesus, right? Uh, we celebrate in Christmas that God left heaven, He sent His Son in human flesh, who was born in Israel, right, in Bethlehem among Jewish people, and Jesus lived among them. Right? Okay, the stone of something is not some concept or idea or theology or doctrine. The stone of something is the person of Jesus Christ, who lived in the midst of, of Israel. Right? He walked with them. He taught them. One of the reasons the Jews all knew him was long before Jesus died and rose again. Word of him had traveled all through the region of Judea, for sure, and to many of the outlying regions as well. As people would come on holiday or on uh, uh, for the for the um, Passover, for the festivals, would come to Jerusalem. Uh, From many regions in the in the empire, the Roman Empire, they encountered Christ. Right? They encountered who Jesus was. So God says, uh, and God knows that Israel is mostly going to reject Jesus. But what is God's mission to Israel? Well, his mission is to plant Jesus fully um, visible in the midst of Israel. He wants all Israel to have the opportunity to grasp his saving plan in the person of Christ. So he lays in, among Israel a, a, a stone. Now it's interesting in Isaiah where this is quoted from. Paul changes the wording a little bit to tweak his purpose, right? Because actually, what it says is, "I am going to lay in Zion a foundation stone, a rock, a stone that will become a rock of stumbling." Right? God's in, in Isaiah. God's original intention and purpose, the reason God sent Jesus, was not deliberately to trip them. Okay. That was not its function, right? The stone that's laid there is to be a foundation stone. It's to be the person of Christ upon whom the Jews could build their life and nation, could establish right relationship with God, right? But he knew that they would uh, would not do that. And so the foundation stone that was Christ became for them a stumbling stone. And so I, I just get this picture of this road in in Jerusalem, this big, white, paved road. And God drops into the middle of this road, this huge, enormous stone that is to be the foundation of a new temple, His church, His people, right? But the Jews are so focused down the road towards the goal of keeping the law that they're trucking along in their race and they don't even see the stone and they trip over it and fall, right? They cannot see Jesus, Because they are so focused on their own efforts to gain salvation. They miss the Savior, right? But nonetheless, God gave them a stone. God put it there and placed it there so they would have the opportunity uh, to respond in faith. Uh, Secondly, uh, it says that he made an end of law, end of the law. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 10, he says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now this verse presents gazillions of theological problems I will not get into this morning, because it will just take way too long. Uh, And there are issues about the law that, that we could untangle here, but let me just suffice it to say this: Paul is not in any way uh, putting down the value of the law, and neither is Moses. Right? Uh, in fact, if you really untangle what he's saying here, probably his point is this: that Moses said you can attain righteousness through the law, but uh, in the context of what Moses writes, uh, as he, as he, as he. Quote, as this is quoted from the Old Testament. Um, Moses would say that that the law can bring you to righteousness, but it's still through the path of faith. And Paul probably had in mind something like that it would work like this. You, as people, God put the law into your life, and if you, in humility and in faith, try to keep it, it will become painfully clear to you that you can't. Right? You will meet with constant failure. And in that sense, the law would be a tool to lead you to righteousness because it would force you to be humble. And when Jesus came, who the law pointed to, when He came and when He perfectly fulfilled the law and carried out its complete action when He died on the cross and made available for you a new kind of righteousness, you would see how much better Jesus was. And you would say, you know, I've tried to keep the law my whole life and I haven't been able to do it. I ask for forgiveness far more than I should. Every time I go, I have to offer to the temple. I have to offer sacrifices and offerings because I'm guilty. I failed the law, and in humility, I see my desperate need for a savior, for the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Okay, that was how the law was intended to work, but the Jews had taken the law with the conviction that they had the power and capacity to fulfill it in themselves and in pride they had convinced themselves they were keeping the law and they had attained for them the righteousness of the law by their own deeds and efforts right so when you keep the law as a matter of pride versus humility right when you break the law what do you do with that well what every good person does with that you say, well, that's not really what the law says, right? You rewrite the law to make it so that you're successful, right? That's why uh, when Jesus was talking to the guy about uh, the law, and he said, uh, you know, you love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, well, who's my neighbor, right? Obviously, only the people that I can successfully do this for, right? right? You rewrite the law. So the... So the law had failed Israel, because, not because the law failed, but because they tried to fulfill it in pride versus humility. And so it was no longer effective. But Paul's point here is that Jesus made an end of the law. In other words, it all pointed to Christ. Right? It was all to lead them as a teacher to the place of understanding their need for Jesus and the gospel. When Jesus came, He fulfilled it. He accomplished it. He made it, in a sense, no longer necessary because now righteousness comes through Christ, not through keeping the law. So Jesus made an end to the law. The Jews could not accept that. Right? They were holding on to the law. And because of their fears, holding on to the law and pride, they missed Jesus. Right? But nonetheless... God did this for them, right? God sent Jesus to end the law primarily for Israel. right? The, the Gentiles, okay they, were, they weren't in the race. they weren't even trying to be right with God through keeping the law. God in a sense did not make Jesus an end the law for this sorry God did make did not make Jesus an end to the law for the benefit of Gentiles because they weren't trying to keep the law right? He did this for the Jews in spite of the fact that they didn't receive it, right? He is generous and broad and uh, going all out to bring to them his salvation. Thirdly, uh, he made the message accessible to them, right? Uh, another very confusing quote that is in verse 6 of chapter 10. Maybe you've read this many times and you going, you yeah, know, this just doesn't make sense to me. This is as bad as chemistry, Um Verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What's he talking about there? This going up to heaven, going down to the abyss, bringing Christ down, bringing Christ, Christ up! It sounds like an elevator, right? Up and down, and up and down is like, you know, confusing. Well, what is he saying here? Well, he's simply saying this: that God has not made the message of salvation or the means of salvation complicated or difficult, right? We don't need to figure out how to get up to heaven, right? We don't need to fast for forty days and go sit under a bow tree to be enlightened, right? This kind of what he's saying here. We don't need to wander off to some cave somewhere and fast and pray and. And try to get ourselves and our brains and our spirits somehow up to heaven to grab hold of Jesus and bring him down to us so we can understand what his message is. Why? Well, again, Christmas footnote number two. Jesus has already come down, right? We don't have to go up and drag him down. He's already come. It's the message of Christmas. He's come for us, right? We don't have to go into the abyss, into the grave, to find Jesus and, and raise him up. Why? Well, he's already rose, rose risen it's <laughs> already risen right the Easter message right he's, he's risen he lives right uh, but what does he say he says that the message is near to you right the word is near you it's in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith we proclaim what's Paul's point here well he's saying simply this the message of the gospel is incredibly accessible. Okay, especially for the Jews that he's talking about here. Right? As I said, the message had gone the gospel had gone through the, the Jewish world. And when Jesus when, when Paul wrote this, no Jew could use the excuse that I've never heard this story before. Okay, they had heard the message. He said it was near them. In fact, it was in their mouth. They could speak it, right? And in a sense, he put it in their heart. Uh, not, not that they would believe it, but he made it accessible to their heart. Okay? Uh, and it was, it was the message that Paul and the apostles and the other witnesses were proclaiming. Okay? And it was a clear and simple message. It was nothing complicated or difficult. Uh, what is the message? Well, he says the message is simply this. Um, uh, for with, uh, uh, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, Jesus came down from heaven. He came down because He's Lord. He's King. He's God. He came up from the grave because He was risen, because He was victorious over sin and death. He says this is the message, that you believe with your heart that these things are true. You proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's not hard. Right? it is not hard it is not complicated right uh, it's not uh, it's not the kind of thing where you got to do this long lengthy penance and go on some huge journey it's simple it is accessible okay and what what we're saying here is, is God has made this so that every Jewish person person should have understood it says they were without knowledge but they should not have been without knowledge God made it plain and obvious to them So the the point in all this uh, that Paul is making is that God has been on a mission. And his mission has been to make his message of salvation clear and easily accessible to everyone so that all who would call on the name of the Lord could be saved. That's the heart and mission of God. So there's nothing fatalistic or deterministic on God's side either in spite of the fact that he knows something of who he's chosen and who he hasn't, he still is actively seeking to bring his message to all people and to make it present to them. He sent Jesus in person so that we could comprehend and grasp who he is, so that we could see it with our own eyes, as John says in 1 John. Touch it, feel it, handle it. And that's the message that's been proclaimed. It is in our mouths and it's in our hearts, right? Uh, God has made it close to us. We don't have to decipher some crazy code, right? You remember the, the Bible code way back? I read, I read this book where you take all the letters of the Bible and if you arrange them in long lines and strings, you can make magic words and formulas come out, right? We don't have to do that, right? It's simple. So that any person in any language, culture, or place can get it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, come down from heaven... And you believe with your heart that he rose from the dead, you can be saved. You just gotta make that commitment of faith. Right? Lastly, let's look at this one more time. This will be much faster. From the point of a believer, what, what does this say about us? Okay, taking these two great doctrinal truths about election, about God's purpose and mission to save the world. Uh, in, the, in the heavenly realms, in, in, in the eternal, infinite sphere of his thinking and being, he's chosen, he's elected. At the same time, he has brought his message to all people, and he's given every human being the opportunity to receive it, to grab hold of it by faith. Given these great truths, what do we do with this as Christians, as those who have received his message? Well, two sim- well, three simple things, basically two things. First one, he says in verse ten. One, brothers, sisters, my heart's desire, my passion, and my prayer to God for them—that is Israel—is that they may be saved. Right? It's amazing. Paul says this right after he just gets done talking about all this stuff about election, right? And what is he? What does Paul do with that information personally? He says, "My heart, right? My my deep longing and desire." is that my, my kinsmen, Israel, that they would be saved. He says, I have not given up. Right? Whatever God chooses, doesn't choose whatever. I still have great hope and great longing and desire and wish that they would come to know the message of salvation. And not only that, but he says, I have made this my prayer to God for them. Paul, in spite of all that he knows about this election stuff, Paul prays for lost Israel. Amazing, right? He doesn't say, well, why should I bother praying? God's made up His mind. I can't affect that. That's right? not what Paul says. Paul knows that, yeah, God's going to choose. And Paul says, I'm going to help Him. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get on God's side and I'm going to start putting bugs in His ear. And I'm going to start saying, God, you need to choose them, right? You need to... Reach down because these are people I love and care about, and I'm going to pray and petition God for their salvation. This is powerful truth, right? Can you uh, and I affect God's heart in how He chooses and how He reaches out and touches lost people? Well, apparently, yes. Because okay, Paul was not a guy who wasted effort on pointless activities, right? He didn't do this just to make himself feel good. Okay, he believed in it. That doesn't mean that Paul was successful in seeing all of Jew, all, all of Israel, all the Jews come to Christ. Well, no, he wasn't. But uh, I believe that he saw many. Right, he saw Jewish people come to faith in Christ as he prayed for them. Right? Who are the lost people in your life? Right, who is the are the lost Thai neighbors that, that you know? The people that you work with, that you see, people in your family. If they don't know Christ, you just chuck chuck it all up to God's sovereignty and election and say, well, you know, God will work it out. No. We are to pray for the salvation of the lost. We are to plead before God for their souls. Uh, Andrew Murray was a guy who believed in prayer and prayed for everything. prayed for healing. He prayed for people. And he believed in the power of prayer. And uh, he prayed specifically for two people his whole life. I think it was something like 50 years. He prayed for two people he knew well to be saved. Uh, in his lifetime, he never saw them come to faith in Christ. But after he died, both of them received Christ. Right? He prayed them into the kingdom. Right? Uh, we, if we believe the gospel of the message, the message of the gospel, should have drank more coffee this morning. If we believe in the message of the gospel, Right. We should be diligently praying for the lost right. That's Paul's heart. Secondly, we should be proclaiming the message of the gospel to all right uh, he says this, he says what, what, what scripture says is this and he quotes scripture the word is near you in your mouth and in your hearts that is the word of faith that we proclaim. okay why is it that the word was near them? Well, it was near them because somebody was proclaiming its message. Now that worked for Israel and it worked for many Gentiles in Paul's day. Uh, but there's a whole world out there who still have not heard, right? And it is our responsibility as believers in Christ to be proclaiming the message of the Gospel. The good news is news, right? And news is to be proclaimed. It is to be heralded. It is to be declared, right? It is to be in our mouth and in our heart. And we are to be speaking its message faithfully everywhere we go. All right? That's why uh, maybe all of us are here. Right? We're here because we believe that this message of the gospel needs to go out to every tribe and tongue and language, to every uh, part of the world, to the ends of the earth. Right? We are here to proclaim its message, and we should be. Paul says it's part of God's purpose and plan to make salvation available, so that all people can choose or reject. It's not our point to convince them or to make them receive it. It's our place to proclaim it. It's God's place to work in their heart, and it's their choice to receive it or reject it. It is our place to make the message known, to proclaim it. And he says that, uh, he says that we proclaim this message to all. He says that whether Jew or Greek, um, uh All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, Paul could have thought this. Paul could have thought, I'm going to proclaim the gospel to the moral people because they're more likely to receive it than the immoral people. Uh, He could have thought this way. He could have thought, you know, the Jews, they've been primed for this. The Jews have been prepared for this. Their whole history leads up to this. I'm going to proclaim the message to them because they'll get it. I'm not going to waste my time on the Gentiles because they just won't understand it. Right? No. Paul preached the gospel to all people. And interestingly, who received it? The moral or the immoral? Well, in the end, the immoral. The ones who shouldn't have. When we proclaim the gospel, do we decide who we're pretty sure will receive the message and who won't? Yeah, that's a good person. They're moral, they're upstanding, they're smart. I'll tell them about Jesus because I think there's a good chance that they'll receive the gospel. Right? Uh, This poor, uneducated, drunken, alcoholic, you know evil person, what are the odds of them understanding this message? Right. But most likely, who will God save? Well oftentimes it's the people we would not expect. Yesterday I got to go baptize Jack. And I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago Stefan was here and talked about comserie and the homeless guy that he drugged back to Comserie off the street selling uh soy milk. Remember that story? Yesterday, Jack got baptized, and Aaron got to baptize him with his cast on his foot. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was it was interesting. And he got to do that uh, up at the waterfall with lots of people standing around going, what in the world are these crazy people doing? Uh, Jack, you know, was not a person you would expect, right, to respond to the gospel. And it reminds me of the last baptism we did there of another guy named Nye, who was selling himself, uh, had fled from Burma. The only way to make money was to sell himself down at Tape. He responded to the gospel. Right? We, we proclaimed the message to all, even to the most unlikely candidates. And finally, he says that, um, that it is, in fact, part of our faith that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? Uh, he says... Um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's very, it's very built into what it is for the to respond to the gospel that we proclaim its message. Right? It's not enough just to believe it, it's not a private matter that we practice simply in our heart. He says we need to also. Proclaim it, confess it with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the only way of salvation. So, even in responding to the faith, we are declaring its message and making it, broadcasting it to the world. And that word confession means to publicly agree with the message of the gospel, to state for other people to hear and understand I believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. And I have put my faith in Him as the means to be in right standing with God. That's part of our process of salvation. If faith is something you've only ever experienced in your heart and you've never proclaimed it or stated it or declared it, Paul would say your faith is suspect. He says both things happen. We proclaim with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe with our heart. He raised Him from the dead. So that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, it is appropriate and fitting that at Christmas time, when we celebrate Jesus' coming, uh, that we celebrate it by declaring its message, right? Hark the herald, angels sing We are to be God's messengers who are declaring this message, because it is God's heart that every person know it. That every person have the opportunity, the privilege of responding to the message of the gospel. Right? Uh, we live in a country, and if you're wondering, well, I don't know where to show the gospel. We live in a country where there are 63 plus million, 64 million people who do not know the message. And most of them have never heard it. Right? They, may, they may have heard the name of Jesus, but they have no idea who he is. They, they have no idea what the story of Christmas is really about. We need to be praying for them. We need to be proclaiming its message. We need to be confessing our faith uh, everywhere we can. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.